Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Spotify. Did you know that every single episode of the Woj Pod is now on Spotify? Yes, the same app that has millions of songs now has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones, just not too many. We get a little jealous here. To subscribe to our show, search for the Woj Pod, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered right to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now, and now, and now. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. We go off the beaten path of basketball, but you'll be glad we did. Here today with New York Times best-selling author Ian O'Connor on his new biography, Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time. You do not have to be an NFL fan or a Patriot fan to love this book and hear the detail, the painstaking reporting that Ian put into what is easily one of the best sports biographies on a coach that I've ever read. Ian gets into his methodology on the book, the stories that help make the man, and the connection that Belichick and the Patriots have in this modern era to Greg Popovich and the San Antonio Spurs. Really, really enjoyed my visit with my good friend Ian O'Connor on Belichick, the making of the greatest football coach of all time. Let's get right to it. The book is called Belichick, the making of the greatest football coach of all time. The author Ian O'Connor is in studio with me. Ian, how are you, man? Great. Great to be here, Adrian. Good to see you. So... The making of the greatest football coach of all time. That, that is not an easy title to assign to Bill Belichick for a graduate of St. Cecilia's. <laughs> exactly. In Englewood, New Jersey, where the great Vince Lombardi once coached high school basketball. Right. And you two share, it's, it's the late great St. Cecilia's. A school has closed years ago, mm-hmm. but the greatest football coach of all time. Yeah, it is a tough thing for me to say, given that all the priests and nuns of my youth would, would have none of that uh, if most of them were still around. But listen, Lombardi did it in a time that's obviously entirely different from today. The restraint of trade as far as player movement was concerned was a great aid to someone who wanted to build the kind of dynasty he built in Green Bay. You don't have that now. Belichick has to deal with a situation where you have free agency, the salary cap – the schedule, the draft, everything is designed to prevent him doing exactly what he's done in Foxborough. So I think uh, he has uh, reached those heights. It's funny that you talk about uh, Lombardi, but uh, back at St. Cecilia's, they, they often spoke of him as just a great teacher of the different subjects he taught in school, how great he was even at basketball. He didn't know anything about the sport. And I believe the priest who was running the school at the time when Vince was the football coach said, I need a recommendation for a basketball coach. It was open. He said, why not me? And the priest said to him, because you don't know anything about basketball. And he said, I'll learn. He actually went to the library, and I think he read Hank Iba books to learn basketball. And then it became – there's a famous game in Bergen County, New Jersey history where Vince Lombardi holds the ball. There was no shot clock back then. Against, <laughs> there's still no shot clock in New Jersey high school <laughs> Is that right? I didn't even know that. Places, right? Your son true. plays, so yeah. you would know that. But – I believe it was against Bogota High School. They were a powerhouse, a state powerhouse. And Lombardi held the ball and the final score, I might have even mentioned it in the book, I forget. I think it was 4-3 or something. St. Cecilia won. And 
But he was a remarkable man in every way. And of course, if he didn't die as young as he did, he probably wins a couple more championships in Washington. He's already turning that program and team around. But unfortunately, his life ended way too soon. I think Belichick doing it at the time he did it puts him ahead of Lombardi and ahead of Paul Brown as well. And this is a remarkable book. This is a remarkable portrait of not only the, you said, the greatest football coach of all time. Maybe just he's in that rarefied era of maybe the greatest professional coach of all time for all the reasons you amplified of this era and the Patriots' dominance and and how much they've influenced the rest of the league. And and I always think sometimes some dynasties or great runs, part of their greatness is how everyone has tried to emulate, hire from the tree, try to try to recreate their program within another place. And and it's and as you've seen with his assistants, with others, it's really hard to recreate. We've seen that in the NBA with Greg Popovich and RC Buford and the Spurs, people hiring from their tree, trying to recreate it. As you lay out in the book, it's it's a lot easier to do that when you have Tom Brady or you have Tim Duncan right. to do that. But you spent years on this book, interviewed over 350 people for it, and a lot of documentation. And going back with Steve Belichick, his dad, one of the real great football minds of his era, coach at the Naval Academy, came up through smaller colleges, obviously one of Bill Belichick's great influences. Your previous three books on Sebastian Telfair and, and high school basketball in that time frame in the early 2000s, Arnie and Jack, the great golf rivalry, and then Jeter. I imagine the reporting for Belichick was a little closer to trying to report out Jeter because you had a very private, secretive subject who could at times get other people around him to maybe not be fully accessible to them. What what did you find with Belichick in trying to report the book and getting people who were there and close to him to open up and talk? Yeah, it was very difficult, Adrian, and I would say it was Jeter times 10. Uh, Jeter, is, as you know, you've covered him. Uh, you covered him for a long time in that market, is a very distant figure. He's cordial, he's professional, but he never lets you in. So he really didn't want me to do the book. He didn't cooperate fully, but he, he wasn't uncooperative. He said he would talk to me at his locker over the course of, of reporting that book, and he did do that. Uh, but Jeter, at least, I had a professional relationship with Jeter. As you know, when Belichick left New York at the end of the 90 season and went to Cleveland, I was just starting to cover sports in New York, professional sports. My So we didn't cross over. He comes back in 97 with Parcells and the Jets, and you were there, and Parcells didn't let his assistants talk, and he was the story. He was an all-encompassing figure. So when you weren't writing columns about the Knicks and the Yankees dynasty, you were going over to the Jets, 97, 98, 99, and of course, they could have won it all in 98. It was all Parcells. So I remember putting in a request to talk to Belichick in 98 when they really had it going, and it looked like they could win it all. It was turned down either by Parcells or never even got to I don't think to Belichick, but then he was gone. And so unlike with Jeter, I never had any relationship with Belichick. And I was in that New York market. The only relationship I had with him, as you know, is the infamous column I wrote in 2000 that the Patriots would regret that hire. <laughs> and looking at it at the time, now now it looks like the craziest take of all time, and I'll you, own you, it. You weren't the only one. You're sitting across from someone who, as a general commas, wrote 
virtually the same column at the time. And there were very few people who, especially the way he left the Jets. I, I assumed the role of an angry New Yorker, and I thought that at the time he wasn't worthy of doing that. He had four losing seasons out of five in Cleveland. He had treated people very poorly, particularly in our profession, didn't show any sort of to me, leadership, charisma, personality to really command the job that he was getting with the Jets. The Jets had a chance really to go back deep in the playoffs. 99, they were favored by a lot of people to win the whole thing. Vinny Testaverde blows out his Achilles in week one, and that was it. But if Belichick stayed with the Jets, he was getting a pretty good team. And it just didn't seem to me that he was really worthy of doing what he did, walking out on that situation and going back on his word. He got the million dollars from Leon Hess to stay. So, yeah, I was the angry New Yorker, and I, I'll tell you this, not just the people in Cleveland. Art Modell told Robert Kraft, if you do this, this will be the biggest mistake of your life. But everyone in the Giants organization felt the same way, and not just George Young, who told Kraft, don't do this. George Young, one of the great executives I've, I've ever covered. People in the Mara family, they thought he was never going to be a successful head coach. So, hey, I wrote it, and my face is next to that headline. It's been tweeted at me 7,000 <laughs> times over the last 15 years, and I'll take it to my grave. I'm fine with it. To decide to invest the years and the time it takes to write the Belichick biography, there's kind of a moment of truth, I think, when you decide to write the proposal and give it to your, take it to your agent and go out and shop it, where you're asking yourself, can I get close enough to tell this story? Is because you don't know how aggressively he's going to try to shut down the world. You hope maybe he'll decide to talk to me. What was that process like of deciding I'm going to go down this road and, and knowing this is not going to be an easy book to do? Yeah, it took me a long time to get there. In fact, my agent, David Black, said he's never seen a publishing house leave an offer on the table for a book as long as Houghton Mifflin did with this one because it took me that long to answer those questions you just asked or that you, you knew I would ask myself. And with the Yankees and Jeter, again, Jeter is a distant private figure but I don't think he's in Belichick's league. I had institutional knowledge with the Yankees and that dynasty and Cashman and, the, and Joe Torre and the rest. I did not have that with the Patriots. Plus, Bill is a guy who is known to hold a grudge, and I assumed that he wasn't very happy with what I wrote in 2000. So it took me a long time to get to that place where I said, yes, I'm going to take this on. This is going to be the biggest challenge of my career. It was every bit of that for three years. And here's the thing. When you go to Foxborough, and I don't know if you've been there at that uh, team facility. Maybe it's it's similar around the San Antonio Spurs. I don't know. But when you're on the grounds and you're talking to people, there is definitely a Big Brother vibe in the air. You can feel it. And you can tell that people, particularly, particularly if they know you're working on a book and if they happen to know that Belichick is not cooperating with this book, that's a tough ask to have someone representing that franchise working either with or for Bill Belichick to be out and – the open talking to you. So in a lot of cases, I just felt like the last place in the world for me to report this book is at the Patriots team facility. And so I needed to get people away from those grounds. So they felt like they, I don't want to say they were, they were being watched, but I think you know what I mean. It's just that feeling of, I mean, Belichick's an overlord and, mm -hmm. uh, and in that building and, and on those grounds, he rules with, with an iron fist. So that was a challenge. It was a challenge getting people to trust me. One of the biggest challenges, Woj, is, was getting his friends to go along with the process of humanizing him. I really wanted to humanize him in this book, and I told everyone that, his, his closest friends. He had asked some people not to talk to me, 
And I said, you know, you guys complain privately that the human side, the softer, kinder, gentler side of Belichick is never portrayed in public. The man that you say you know as one of his best friends. Well, if you're not willing to tell those stories, they're never going to get out there. Mm -hmm. And I want those stories in this book. I want to humanize them. I want to show that side of that person. And so I convinced some of them to do that and others – Listen, if I wanted to write a book about the great career of Adrian Wojnarowski and I called your agent who happened to know, Matt Kramer, (laughs) and I said, listen, okay, there's going to be a few things in this book you're not going to love. I want as many humanizing anecdotes about Adrian as you can give me. I'm pretty sure he's going to give me some of those because I want to include those in the book. Well, I asked Neil Cornrich or I sent him an email, laid that out for him, and I said, I'm going to find my own. But I imagine you know acts of generosity and kindness that I won't find that you're aware of that haven't been documented publicly in the past. I'd love to have them. I'd love to put them in the book. No answer. Same thing with uh, Bears Nigerian, his chief of staff. So uh, I think I have a lot of those stories in the book. I know there are more out there. And that was a, a real challenge to get people to humanize someone they know doesn't really want to be publicly humanized. And it's certainly reflected in the biography. It's a biography. It's this is what happened. It's not an opinion. It's just, here's what happened. And his story, there's so many incarnations of his career and his life. There's obviously a lot of winning. There's a lot of early frustration. There's a lot of scandal. But there's also, and I think especially early in the book, there are influences all over his coaching career. And and you can see where he's taken a little from a lot of people to create who he is. And Starting with his father, Steve Belichick, who I was really taken by the early parts of Belichick's career, of his dad's career, small college in Ohio, onto the Naval Academy. And you see as much as anything in what Bill becomes is that that attention to the fundamentals in detail. It's not always about great schemes, and Belichick is certainly known for that. But none of the great schemes, none of that means much without just a tremendous emphasis on the simplest parts of the game and the discipline it takes to sit in a film room. I don't know if that was an era earlier where everybody utilized film in the way that it's so much easier to do now. Technology, then it was a long, more cumbersome process that his dad embraced and that Bill literally grew up with as a young kid, sitting in the film room with his dad, watching Hour after hour after take, that, that was his childhood. It was, and not only that, but going on the road uh, with his father when his father scouted opponents, future opponents, he learned how to scout a game and what to look for, and not just the basics, but to go deeper. And his father was as detailed as anyone in the country at breaking down a team while watching a game. So he learned that. He learned being in the film room or meeting rooms on Monday nights in the field house at the Naval Academy, watching his father work a room. And boil it down really to two or three or four things that if we do these things, we are going to beat Army. We are going to beat Michigan. We're going to beat Washington or Wisconsin. And there are moments I talked to many coaches at the Naval Academy where they said, Steve Belichick found something on Monday that won us this game on Saturday. And that happened against some powerhouse teams, against Washington one year. The the Washington Huskies, I think, were one of the – Highly ranked teams in the country, they were a powerhouse and Belichick saw something about swing passes to the, Steve Belichick, to the, to the left, I believe. They ran a play that was huge in that game and they won. And I want to say that was early in the 1960 season. In 1958, they're playing Michigan. Michigan had a really good two-way halfback. 
Steve Belichick notices that when that guy's playing defense, he comes up aggressively on the run. If if we run a play action against him, he's going to come up and then we can go over the top and score a touchdown. Well, the player that game actually was was banged up and he didn't play much, but he came in the game late on defense, kind of banged up, and Steve Belichick's play was run and they beat Michigan on that play because of one thing he saw on film, the guy entered the game in the third or fourth quarter at a, at a vulnerable moment and they ran Steve Belichick's play and they, and they won that game. So those are things that, uh, and not only that, Steve Belichick, I, I think a lot of people don't know this story, was way ahead of his time in terms of race relations. During World War II, he's in the U.S. Navy. He's stationed on Okinawa, which was going to be the staging area for the invasion of Japan. If that happened, thank God it didn't. And, there was an officer's club and Sam Barnes, who later became Samuel Barnes, one of the, I believe the first African-American on the governing council of the NCAA. He becomes one of the first 13 black naval officers for the United States. And he walks into the officer's club. Every white officer in there walks out. It's the first time that Samuel Barnes had entered. Steve Belichick is the only white officer who stayed. He sits down with him, befriends him. I think they knew each other a little bit both Ohio guys, and Samuel Barnes' daughter, Olga, later told me that it was something of a Brian Song kind of uh, relationship. Uh, your younger uh, listeners will, will not know that reference, right? But it's one of the most famous football movies. It's a tearjerker. Gail every, Sayers. No, it's a tearjerker every single time. <laughs> every time. We're right, watching. right. But, but a great movie for uh, an early look at race relations. But Steve Belichick, you're talking 1940s. This is before Jackie Robinson. This is before everything, right? And uh, Brown versus Board of Ed. And so here he is showing fellow officers, this is how you treat a human being, right? Uh, Barnes's daughter said that Steve Belichick roomed with Samuel Barnes briefly as well. So that was a big deal. And I think raising Bill in that culture in the house does help him later on connect with African-American athletes. Bill was raised in a household where everyone was was to be treated equally and to be seen as a a fully equal human being. And that wasn't the case in America in a lot of households. And and you document this in the chapter where Bill is in high school and his high school football program was, you know, in Annapolis, Maryland at a time of, you know, a lot of racial strife and a school dealing with integration and a team, you know, a high school coach who had to deal with that. And Bill, um, you see it in one of the NFL film Patriot documentaries where Bill goes back and is riding around in a car. He goes back to his high school. You see him walking around and he talked a little bit about it in his car, but I thought that was another, it seemed like something that left an incredible impression with him about how people from different worlds, different races, different backgrounds, at, at, even at that early age, how they came together to be a team and, and what it meant to be a team. Al Armore was the big Al, was the head coach at Annapolis High School. But before Bill got there, he spent two years at Bates High School, which which had been an all-black school. And then desegregation happened and some white students ended up at Bates. Bill was one of them. He saw some racial unrest there. He ends up after uh, two years transferring to Annapolis a lot of black students ended up at Annapolis. Bates became a junior high school. So he's right there in the uh, period of integration and seeing how that evolved and seeing how his head coach handled that. Al Laramore was known as someone who 
treated everyone based on merit. Didn't matter if you were black or white, if you were a good player. He only discriminated against bad football players. That was it. And Bill saw that. And, and I think that made a, a great impression on him. You know, people say, well, Bill didn't exactly connect with his players in, in Cleveland. Uh, no, and I think he was learning how to be a head coach there, but, uh, he struggled with white and black players in Cleveland. He, he, he didn't connect really with anyone. And then, uh, of course he, he improved in that area in New England, but Belichick learned a lot from Al Laramore and, and on the football field, Laramore would run three, four plays off tackle. You try to stop us. We're telling you what we're going, going to run. We're going to out execute you. And it was really a small handful of plays. Rarely did he throw the ball. He had a good quarterback and a good fast wide receiver. They threw it occasionally, but it was power football and it was fundamentals. We're coming off tackle. You're not going to stop us because we're, we're going to execute. We're going to be precise and we're going to beat you. And I think what Belichick learned from him there was the emphasis on the fundamentals. Uh, and, and also Al Laramore didn't say much to the media and he kept it short and sweet. He didn't want his players speaking for others, which is the big Belichick thing in New England. He was cordial professional he said very little to rile up the opponent if he had an opportunity to praise the opponent he would uh, I think the only time I ever saw him say anything with an edge to it was he would say something along the lines I saw him quoted once or twice uh, saying this it was like the game starts at 1 p.m. we'll be there we'll be ready to go and we're going to show up so he would say a few things like that but I think Belichick took a lot from him in terms of fundamentals in terms of being very careful with the uh, local media and uh, also the way he treated black and white players equally. And, and again, not a lot of coaches in that period did that. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is sponsored by 23andMe. 23andMe is a DNA testing service that can offer insights into your ancestry, health, wellness, and traits. The 23andMe Health Plus Ancestry Service includes reports on how your DNA can influence your weight, sleep quality, caffeine intake, sense of taste, whether you are likely to become lactose intolerant, and more. It's easy to do. You simply spit into the tube provided in your 23andMe kit and mail your saliva sample back to the lab to be analyzed. It took just a moment for me to send my sample back to the lab, and what I got back was a lot of data and information that helps me live a healthier, smarter, better life. The deep sleep report tells you if you are more likely to be an especially deep sleeper. The sleep movement report tells you how you're likely to move during your sleep based on your DNA. The saturated fat and weight report tells you based on your genetics how your weight might be affected by saturated fats in your diet and offers tips on which foods to watch out for if you're trying to eat less. The lactose intolerance report sheds insights into how your genetics may affect your ability to digest dairy products. Order your 23andMe Health Plus Ancestry Service Kit at 23andMe.com slash Woj. That's the number 23andme.com slash Woj, W-O-J. As you said, Ian, Belichick did not cooperate. He didn't sit for an interview or interviews for the book. There are so many stages of Belichick. His career was not a straight line. No. It was not a straight line to become, again, arguably, certainly the greatest coach of of this era and, and maybe ever. Where were the points where you said, well, I really wish I could ask Bill about this? And a lot of them, there were so many controversies. There were so many investigations 
And there were so many relationships that got sideways from Bill Parcells to Eric Mangini and then ultimately to Tom Brady. Now, these are not things that Bill Belichick has ever talked. He did go back and do the 30 for 30 with Parcells. Right. And clearly that relationship, it may not be, I'm not sure it was ever really, really close. It was a great professional mm-hmm. relationship. And I think if in advanced years, those two have certainly reconnected. But where did you say, boy, I wish I had Bill on this. I wish Bill could answer this for me. Well, the one excerpt that uh, that was on ESPN.com about the day at Wesleyan where coaches ran a really dangerous drill, ran it 10, 11, 12 times. It wasn't a drill. They were practicing point after attempt, and Bill was snapping the ball. And basically three guys were blasting him, trying to uh, – two guys engaged him, and then the third guy was running over the top of him trying to block the kick. They thought they saw something on film, uh, the upcoming opponent, where they can get a PAT blocked. Bill got blown up in that uh, practice 12 times about, and finally his leg snapped. And just – he was so angry at, at one particular coach, but – I guess the coaching staff in general that he quit the sport for over a year. And I, I would have liked to certainly have asked him about what he learned from that day, what he took away from that, how it, how it shaped him as a coach and seeing what happened to him and how he was basically abused in that practice. But some of the things you're talking about, I, I think Spygate to me is a lot more interesting than Deflategate. First of all, I don't think Bill, if Deflategate happened, I don't think he really had anything to do with it. I really think he was credible on that. I believe him. Actually, a lot of people around the league, most of them don't believe him, his explanation on Spygate, that he just misinterpreted the rule. I think mm-hmm. nobody believes that. But most people around the league, surprisingly enough, believe that he really didn't have anything to do with the Flaygate. So, and his but, initial reaction on that, too, and, and you chronicle about it, it's certainly, at the very least, miffed Brady and, and his camp, his world – was that he really, from the, the first answer, was he pushed it off. You need to go ask Tom about this. He That's wasn't right. taking ownership on any level of it. Yeah, Tom and his camp, they were not happy about that, and nor should they have been. But, hey, Belichick decided right from the outset of that case, I already had my scandal, <laughs> my gate. This is going to be Tom's gate, all right? Yeah. Because, in fairness, Spygate benefited Tom just as much as it benefited Bill, right? Well, who took the full hit for that? Nobody ever relates Spygate to Tom Brady. Well, he gained great advantages from that. Well, actually, maybe not. And that's the point I was going to make about Spygate and one of the reasons why, to me, it's far more interesting, really, than Deflategate. I don't think the advantage was that great that he was gaining in filming from the sidelines. As Bill Belichick has said, 80,000 people can see the coach giving the signals. You can watch. You can document it. You could go back to the film, match it up. So the risk that he took was so great for what I thought was fairly little reward and he was warned by the Jets, don't do this in our building. And the league had sent out memos. And, and so why did he still do it? Because I really think if you take away Spygate and if you want to count to Flategate, they still have five championships. And they still have all the division titles. I think the people around the country outside of New England who believe that they're a product of cheating, they're missing the boat on that. I really think that he still has five rings without Spygate. And... So I don't, I'd like, to, I really would have loved to ask him, okay, once you get warned, okay, the league sends out the two memos, but then Mangini gets word to you, we know you're going to do this because I was in your program. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you do it elsewhere, you're just not doing it in my house, okay? And he did not take that Sunday off, right? If, mm-hmm. if, if it's you, Woj, or me, I think we're just going to stop the operation for at least a week and then resume it. 
So I, I would have loved to have asked him uh, that question. I think the Parcells relationship, he's talked mm-hmm. some length about that over time. I think I have a pretty good understanding of it. There's a a quote from Parcells in the book. <laughs> and this is a, this is post uh, Two Bills. Actually, you know what? I did the interview, I think, before the Two Bills mm-hmm. aired. Right? Mm-hmm. Cause I think it was in 2016. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, I had a source tell me, hey, do you know that Parcells is not too happy that Belichick's game plan from the 1990-91 Super Bowl is in the Hall of Fame? Right. And I was like, I didn't know that. No, <laughs> but I guess that makes some sense. And so – so I, I get Parcells on the phone. Initially, I thought we were going to meet in Saratoga. He decided he didn't want to do that. And then he goes, ask your questions now. I'm on the phone. I wasn't really prepared. So right. I started firing questions at yeah. Parcells. And I was just about to say, well, I have a source who knows you and Belichick who says you're not too. And once I brought up the game plan, he didn't let me even say the word source. He said, I don't even know whose idea it was to put that in the Hall of Fame. We played defense for 19 minutes. We had the ball for 41 minutes. If anyone's game plan should be in the Hall of Fame, it should be Ron, Ron Earhart. Earhart. Right? Yeah. So I think I, do I think he was taking a I think he was sticking up for Earhart and his legacy. And also the bigger point, which is I think where you're going, is Belichick has five trophies of his own. Parcells has two. Okay. Let me have my two. Mm-hmm. Don't make me give one of those to Belichick for that game plan that right. he enacted for 19 minutes that night in Tampa. It was a magical night, but and it was a great game plan. But I, I can see Parcells' point on that one. The book is Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time. The authors, Ian O'Connor, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt is the publisher. The book's available everywhere now, just released. Belichick's... The complexity of him, I think, is a leader, the evolution of him as a leader. And you get into Cleveland. Yeah, there were a lot, there were circumstances in Cleveland from, you know, the team feeling like they were about to turn the corner, that he'd gotten his kind of guys in there. And then Art Modell decides to move the team in the middle of the night and it becomes an untenable situation, really difficult. I think Bill sort of has always wanted people to believe that's what undid me there. And it was no question a factor, but there were a lot of other factors and you get into them. You tell him here was what he became as a leader. And I think when he got to New England, you know, Damian Woody talks about it, you know, like the first days Belichick comes in and says to them, there's going to be no light at the end of the tunnel. And he, you know, he ran camp like, you know, it was the Junction Boys. You know, he ran an NFL camp like, you know, Bear Bryant at Texas A&M. And he was going to weed guys out. And, and, and that's risky in the NFL. You don't always get time to see a program through when you do right. it that way. The second act of Bill as a head coach was almost derailed before it started. And, and you and I were, were on the field that day, the first Sunday of NFL football after 9-11, at the end of that game when they're against the Jets, September 23rd. When they're about to go 0 and 2, right? And now Belichick is 5 and 13 in his first 18 games as head coach of the Patriots. And everyone is worried, including Bill himself, that this is the end of the road and he's not getting a third chance as a head coach. There is no doubt about that. So Robert Kraft, a lot of people in that organization, Bill himself were worried that he was going to get fired at the end of that second year. So all of a sudden Tom Brady walks into his life. And so, you know, Obviously, Bill's detractors over the years, people who don't love him, would say, this is all about Brady, what's happened ever since. Look at the record, 5-13 and 13 in New England, 
four losing seasons out of five in Cleveland, even though he had the one really good season in 94 where he beats Parcells in the mm-hmm. playoffs. Saban is his defensive coordinator. But every great coach, as you know, in every sport needs a centerpiece. You need great players. Uh, John Wooden, how many titles does he win without Lou Alcindor and, and Bill Walton? And uh, Joe Torre with Mariano and Jeter. Popovich mm-hmm. and, and Duncan and Red Auerbach and Bill Russell and Cousy and it, it, you, great coaches yeah. are not yeah. going to be great unless they have great players. That we know. But I think if, if Belichick got someone other than Tom Brady and Eli Manning, I, I think Belichick himself is worth an extra Super Bowl. So maybe Eli has three mm-hmm. instead of two. Maybe Flacco has two instead of one. Aaron Rodgers, you think there's any chance Aaron Rodgers has one Super Bowl if he's playing for Belichick his entire career? And Mike McCarthy's a good coach. He's not a great coach. Peyton Manning doesn't end up with two rings, right? So I think Brady gave him a chance to survive. And then once he survives, then he advances his program and and he starts to figure out in 2001, I have a quote in there from Anthony Pleasant, where he, he starts saying, you know, this is a different guy than the guy that uh, people knew in Cleveland. He's starting to connect with us. And behind the scenes over the years, one of the most underrated parts of Belichick's style as a coach is his self-deprecation, his sarcasm, his dry wit. Players find it funny. And, and he really, one-on-one, again, I didn't have that meeting. I wanted it didn't get it. But from all accounts, he can be a charming guy, a funny guy, a human guy, and and really connect with players. And there's no way you'd have all this winning since 2001 without that. It wouldn't just be system day after day after day. Now, I think it finally got to him and Brady at the last year. But it's amazing it took 18 years for that to happen. But there was some human connection behind the scenes that he would never show the public. And, it, and it's interesting, uh, Woj, because – most public figures, as you know, they show their best side in public. They hide their worst side in private. Yeah. He does the opposite. That's right. It's just a weird thing. I don't, I don't, I'm still not quite 100% sure after three years of studying him why he does that. Uh, but I think there's some professional reasons for it. I think he feels he needs to set a tone for his team publicly that he wants them to follow. Somebody else who's similar in that is Greg Popovich mm-hmm. in San Antonio. And you can parallel almost by the years and the eras, very comparable program success, you know, there's some really interesting relationships between the Spurs front office and the Patriots. R.C. Buford has gone up and spent time with the Patriots and tried to learn from them and learn. They've gone around and tried to learn from a lot of people, but there's always been a pull to New England and they've spent time there. I asked Popovich about this after they won their title in 2007. And Pop now had, at that time, four championships. He would win one more, beat Miami again a few years later, or beat Miami a few years later. Belichick had won, I think, at that point, three Super Bowls. And the common den- one of the common denominators with those two were here were coaches who could have gone out and marketed themselves, marketed their winning, coaches who were you know, bigger than the program in a lot of ways and who people would have loved to hear from in – in a book and telling their story or, you know, again, could have gone out and and done endorsements. And and I asked Popovich why he had not done any of that. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, listen, it's a player's league. I think it's very important for a coach to make sure that its players believe 100% and not with lip service that it's about them. Coaches are going to do everything they can to create that environment for them. It's not about creating an environment for us. It's a privilege to be able to coach these guys we make enough money. The other stuff to me is just a waste of time as far as talking 
about quality of life. And I asked his owner about that, their former owner, Peter Holt. And he said, Pop's one of those guys who says, get over yourself. He doesn't just spout that off to his 20-year-old players who've got big egos. He also believes it for himself. He thinks that the big key for not only himself but for our whole team is keeping this stuff from going to our heads. I guess a lot of those guys with books and speeches have messages to deliver. And I think Pop would just tell you that. My message is get over yourself, and you can't write a book about that. (laughs) But I think – and you get into this in Belichick – he has never gone – listen, like Pop says, they do make a lot of money. Bill makes a lot of money, but that doesn't stop other guys from going out. That's right. Pat Riley created a whole second industry of doing speeches and going out. Bill's never done it. Pop never did it. Why, why – when you hear Popovich talk that way, does that resonate with you about how Bill viewed it? Absolutely, Woj. It does. I think it's, that's exactly how he feels. It's funny. Rick Pitino has how many books? Has he written five? I think it's five, and he's won two national titles, right? Well, sort of. One one and one. (laughs) But, but so, so Belichick has five national titles in his sport, not counting the two that he won with Parcells, and he has no, no books that he's written about by himself and, and with anybody else, and I don't know if he ever will. I think most people assume when he retires that he'll do a book, but maybe not. And I, I think it's exactly, uh, how you quoted, uh, Popovich. I think he feels that way. I know he did meet with a couple of New Jersey marketing guys from 16W Marketing. Yep. Let's give him a plug. Steve Rosner <laughs> and Fr- Frank Vono. And I want to say this this was about 11, 12 years ago in Boston. They met in a restaurant. And Bill wanted to explore it a little bit anyway, just to feel him out. Now, what exactly would this entail? Time commitment. And if I did sign on as a corporate endorser, how would I present myself? How do you think that's going to work? And what kind of character am I going to be if I do that? And one of those two executives, marketing executives, said to him, maybe like a an Oscar Madison, a grouch, or a self-deprecating guy. And you know, they exchanged some ideas. And I think they sat for an hour, hour and a half or so. And Belichick listened, heard them out, and they left without an agreement. And he thanked them for their time. He said, "I'll get back to you." And a week later, he called and said. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. I think I'm just going to stick with my current path here and, and not doing those things. Now, he did start a, a Bill Belichick, Inc. right around the same time. I, I just don't know really what uh, came out of that. But when you think – I think Forbes recently had his net worth at like $35 million. Do you think of the tens of millions of dollars he's left on the table not doing corporate endorsements and speeches and books? I don't know how much money that is, but it's probably more than $35 million, frankly. And I, I think that he feels exactly the same way that uh, Popovich does, and that if I did all those things, I'd feel kind of counterfeit or fraudulent. And my program is is about one for all and all for, for one. And if I put myself above that, uh, I think that would be fraudulent. The other thing is, and I have this in the book, his most devastating defeat of his football life is Super Bowl 42, losing the chance to go 19 and 0. It's the greatest team of all time, the only team ever to go 19 and 0. And to lose it against a team they beat in the regular season, the Giants, and they were better than, no question about it on paper. And the scene in the locker room after that game, I think is very telling. He spoke to the team. It was a broken, broken team. And I don't know if any, I mean, I guess similar maybe to the Spurs when they, they lost, lost to Miami. Miami. Yeah, but yep. I, I almost think this one was worse. But 
those are t- the two worst I've, I think I've ever seen in terms of devastation. But in this locker room afterward, weeping, hulking men's just broken at their lockers. Belichick walks in to the room and there's silence and uh, he blamed himself. You know, he blamed himself. One player said there were some things offensively he mentioned that player didn't want to get. It was Heath Evans specific about it, but there were some decisions made in that game that you could say that coach mm-hmm. made a bad decision there. But Belichick did not try to group other people in. He just blamed himself and walked out of the room. When they win, he does. I, I really believe he's genuine about this. He says the players win the game and the coach, the coaches lose the game. And, and I think for the most part, he does believe that. And when they win, and players try to, you see scenes in NFL films, try to say, coach, thank you so much for believing in me. Thank you so much for doing this or that. He always says, it's a player's league. You guys won the game. And I know it looks good and it sounds good, but I really do believe he means that. Yeah, and I think that there's a – for even the great ones, because it is hard to sustain that greatness if you start to really believe your own bullshit. Usually that's where guys implode. And, and I see it. You see dynasties, runs, but coaches – not everybody can handle success and the price that you're going to have to continue to pay as a coach. Bill Belichick's not the same person he was as a young assistant in New York where he was trying to build his career and his reputation and the hours you'd put in. It's a lot harder to do that in your 60s. It just is because you're asking yourself, is this all worth it? And you realize you've missed your kids. You've missed things and life's passing you by and you go kind of, is that all there is? And 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 so you know like – how hard it is and, and that ultimately, like you said, you're at the mercy of players. And the thing, Ian, with Belichick, Robert Kraft, Tom Brady, and it's, you know, you got into it in this Belichick biography and, you know, there's been other reporting about it in the last year, 18 months, about how fragile that Patriot dynasty not only is now, but maybe has been for a while and that it's, it's maybe somewhat remarkable given what they've been through together, the scandals created some pressure points for these relationships, money. Brady has given back money in contracts to try to help the Patriots keep talent around them. And not every year did all those decisions when he gave back money result in maybe what Tom hoped would come around it. And then, you know, I think as you chronicled and others, Brady's frustration with how Belichick still treats him maybe doesn't give him the latitude Tom thinks he should get from him. All of those things make for just such a delicate, fragile, combustible situation. And where it gets more delicate, Adrian, is really the drafting of Garoppolo in 2014. What's interesting is that since that point, Brady has taken it to another level where the Patriots have won two Super Bowls, gone to a third, almost went to a fourth. And uh, that changed everything in a positive and negative way. I really think Brady answered that call. He started worrying about his job as soon as Belichick said the night they drafted Garoppolo, I'd rather be early than late at this position. We all know Tom's age and we all know his contract situation. The warning shot was fired right over Brady's head and he he saw it and he heard it. And now he got off to a bad start in 14 and he was worried about his job and Garoppolo came in against the Kansas City late. He looked really Mm -hmm. good. Brady got benched and... All of a sudden, questions are being asked. Is Garoppolo going to take over this team a lot sooner than people thought? Is, is Brady, is he done really as a, as a franchise player at the highest level? He wins the Super Bowl that year, uh, in 15, uh, almost gets there, uh, loses at Denver in the AFC title game in 16. They win it again, 17. They, you could argue they should have won it, but they almost did. 
and losing the, to, so, so things get better, but relationships get more strained, particularly the Brady Belichick one, because Garoppolo is sitting there and Brady knows that Bill has told people that he was looking forward to the day that he could win a Super Bowl basically without him and just add to his legacy. And to put to rest any lingering doubt about Belichick's greatness, that it's not all tied to Tom Brady, right? So, and Garoppolo was, was a great player and Bill really liked him personally. And, and he was there. He was Drew Henson at Michigan and, and Tom Brady was sort of haunted by Drew Henson, who was an all American. He was almost a LeBron James like mm-hmm. recruit coming out of high school. Maybe not quite at that level, but close enough. And Brady had waited so long to start at Michigan, and all of a sudden this golden boy comes in and is trying to take his job, and Lloyd Carr is trying to give it to Drew Henson. And so Garoppolo all of a sudden becomes Drew Henson. Now Brady is far more established at, at, in New England than he was at Michigan, but he sees the threat, the challenge, and that does impact his relationship with Belichick without question. And it all came to a head this past season. I, I was planning on ending the book, frankly, Woj, with the humanizing anecdotes, the moments of decency and kindness that Belichick shared with and generosity with friends and colleagues and was going to have that be the last takeaway from the book. But then the 2017 season happened. I did not see that coming where inner turmoil for the first time visits that franchise, much like the San Antonio Spurs. And you thought those are two programs and two head coaches that might never have to deal with that ever again. And they both dealt with it pretty much around the same time. And so the Brady-Belichick uh, relationship gets really strained over Garoppolo, over the marginalization of Alex Guerrero, Brady's mm-hmm. business partner and fitness coach and life coach. And, and really, uh, the last thing on that is overall the way Bill coached him for 18 years in a very unforgiving way. Now, Belichick is – and I know you appreciate this too – coaches who are not screamers and beraters. Belichick is the opposite of that. And I like that. Parcells is is a berater and a screamer on the practice field. Belichick is not. But Belichick will rebuke you sarcastically in the film room and in the meeting room in front of everybody. And he would do that to Brady a lot, sending a message to everyone else that you might be, in this case, the greatest quarterback ever. I'm going to hold you to the same standard if you're the 53rd player on the roster that I'm holding Tom Brady to. And so – that message is a big part of the reason I believe that accountability for the greatness of the Patriots. But over time, 18 years of that, yeah. it wore Brady out. And he had had enough last year and ultimately was thinking this offseason about a divorce. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is also sponsored by RX Bar. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar. What does that mean? The bars are made with real whole ingredients. They want to be transparent and upfront with our customers, which is why they label the core ingredients, egg whites, dates, and nuts on the front of the package and the flavor components on the back, real unsweetened chocolate, coconuts, apple, etc. Beyond being a go-to snack that checks off a number of nutritional boxes, RX bars actually taste delicious. They found creating a bar made from real whole food ingredients actually tastes better than anything out there. They don't need the fillers, the additives, the chemicals, or the added sugar. How did they start? In 2013, they called BS on protein bars. They couldn't find a bar out there that wasn't full of artificial ingredients, fillers, and just general BS. That's why they set out to create a bar with a few simple, clean ingredients where every ingredient serves a purpose. RX bars are gluten-free, 
soy-free, and dairy-free. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit bars, there's definitely an RX bar for you. No artificial colors, preservatives, or fillers. RX bars are great for a number of occasions. The way I use them, breakfast on the go, a snack at the office to push you through, your 3 p.m. slump, and of course, the other thing I do with mine, toss them in your bag and take them on the plane with you. And of course, throw it in your backpack for a bike ride or a hike. RX bars come in 14 delicious flavor varieties and seasonal flavors too. And now, RX bar has debuted a RX nut butter, which contains a few simple and similar ingredients like egg whites, fruits, and nuts. Each single serve packet contains delicious creamy nut butter with 9 grams of high-quality protein. It's squeezable and spreadable and pairs with fruit, rice cakes, pretzels, or straight out of the pouch. And so here's what you do. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash woge and enter promo code woge at checkout. Believe me, you're going to love it. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash woge and enter promo code woge at checkout. You're going to thank me for doing it. You know, it's funny, uh, you talk about that Belichick-Brady dynamic, and that went on in San Antonio, too. Popovich and Tim Duncan, they would tell you there, would go through stretches where they weren't really talking. And the joke around the Spurs would be, yeah, Pop and Tim are divorced now, <laughs> but they know they'll get back together. Right. But there were, Pop coached him hard, and it was the same thing, that if the rest of the team sees you're going to be hard on your star player, the great one of the greats of all time, what chance do I? I better listen. I have to fall. I, you know, and so that's part of it. And there's always other dynamics about. I always said with San Antonio, and I think this is true in New England, the issues are there in the locker room. The same issues that everybody else has: playing time, touches. Same in football: touches. Who's who's a bigger part of the offense or the defense? Whatever it is, those issues exist everywhere. What people in San Antonio would always tell you. It never left the locker room. Tim Duncan would squash it. Manu Ginobili would squash it. They would handle it internally. So at times the coaches didn't have to. And the the best teams are policed by themselves. And I think same thing in New England. If those issues are all there, like what you're seeing playing out in at different times, different football teams in a league where every week guys are like what's going on in San Antonio. I saw Teddy Bruschi talking about this on NFL Live the other day about what was going on in Pittsburgh with Le'Veon Bellow and the mm-hmm. players every day talking about it, saying that this should have been shut down. This shouldn't be the constant conversation. And that in other places it would have been. And, and I think San Antonio and New England are so much, they were similar that they handled it. San Antonio, all of a sudden, the Kawhi Leonard situation comes and Tim Duncan's not there anymore. Tim would come hang around the facility and play and he would talk to Kawhi, but he's not, it's not his team anymore. It was Kawhi's team. And now this issue festered, it became bigger, and ultimately led to him asking for the trade and saying, I'm not going to stay here. But I think so much of those organizations is that Tom's ability in New England and the other great leaders they had is to handle it and and build and always have to handle it. Right, and and, and the big thing there, again, and, and this is a Belichick staple, speak for yourself. If somebody comes up to you and asks you about Gronk's contract, that what does that have to do with you? Don't. Just don't answer that question. So I think that's a good way of keeping things in-house. And when you have a leader like Brady, of course, it makes it – or Tim Duncan. It just makes it easier, someone who gets it. Now, I think the 
living in, in close quarters every day with another perfectionist like Belichick and, and Brady and Belichick under immense pressure to still stay at the highest possible level year after year after year to be the greatest ever. There's a lot of responsibility and pressure that comes along with that. And I, and I think ultimately the reason why it got public finally in 2017 or during that season and after the season in the postseason with the uh, Seth uh, Wickersham piece and a lot of other Boston reporters who did really good work on the internal workings and some of the turmoil revolving mostly around Alex Guerrero is is just the uh, beyond the good reporting the the length of time those two being together that long at some point it was going to happen I had a Longtime team official with the Patriots tell me, you know, this story probably could have been written in 2008. It could have been written in, well, not 2008 because Brady was out that year, but 2009, 2005, 2003. Pick your year. We had issues. I have to give Robert Kraft some credit too. And in that, now he has a transformational relationship with Brady. That's where the love is. And Brady needed that because with Belichick, he needed someone in the hierarchy to have some love with. And those guys, it, it really is like a bromance. You know, it's funny. You mentioned Kraft and, and Belichick. And when I think of the visual of the two Bills 30 for 30, they show Bill Belichick and Bill Parcells watching a clip of Robert Kraft basically saying, you think it's easy to deal with those two egos? And, and the both of them just looked and you could see them both biting their lip. And you could see Bill... Just that look on his face of, there's probably something I'd like to say here, but I'm not going to do it. But I think as you learn more of what has gone on there, that to me, that clip spoke to, you know, just some of the underlying tension. You have some reporting in the book, Ian, about times where Belichick would walk through the halls right. at Patriot facility, walk by his owner, not even say hello to him. <laughs> this guy's paying him millions of dollars, right? There's one craft story, your old buddy, Jim Fossil. Shared with me. Gentleman Jim. Gentleman Jim, right? Former head coach of the New York Giants. So Parcells leaves in a very stormy way, New England. And what other way could Parcells ever leave a franchise, right? right? Ends up with the, the Jets, obviously. And Fossil wins coach of the year. Parcells doesn't. Kraft sees him, I think, at the owner's meeting and gives him a big hug. And he says, I love the fact that you won coach of the year with that guy in the same market. <laughs> and so he, and, and Fossil said he hates Parcells. He hates him. That's what he told me. So yeah, there was, it took a long time for, for that relationship to get repaired to some degree. Not that it matters because they're not in the same organization, but Kraft as Switzerland and being in the middle of Brady Belichick. And it's it, it, in some ways at the end here, it's really Brady and Kraft versus Belichick because again, Brady and Belichick have always had a transactional relationship. It's what they did for each other that made mm -hmm. that relationship work. And it's the best transactional relationship in the history of the NFL. But the love and affection, and Tom's a warm guy. I know some of his friends, male friends have told me, like, he'll say, I love you. And as a man, <laughs> they say it kind of knocks you off balance. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Tom's kind of a warm guy and Kraft likes that and, and really treats him like a son and, they they live right next to each other. It, it's it's sort of like Robert and Tom versus Bill, uh, and and so it was an interesting dynamic the way it played out at the end and Kraft trying to keep it together, and it wasn't easy and it, it wasn't easy at all. And I think I know for a fact that the morning of the AC Championship game, Kraft did an interview with the NFL Network. Where, and that was when the Patriots came back and beat Jacksonville that day in Foxborough. And Bill found out about this later, but he said, somebody asked him, 
on air, I think it was Willie McGinnis actually, a former Patriot, about what was going on and reports of turmoil. And Kraft did say something about everyone needs to keep their egos in check. And I think Belichick took that as a direct shot at right. him, and he did not like that. Um, but he's back, and Brady, who I think was ready to play for Josh McDaniels, I think Brady was trapped. I think in the offseason he was so upset about the way Alex Guerrero was, was treated and an extension the way Brady was treated about the benching of Malcolm Butler, about the way he's been coached in an unforgiving, no-compliment way for so long that he was really ready for a change. The problem was once he allowed them to trade Garoppolo and the Patriots banked on Brady's uh, desire to play, that he stated publicly many times, to play into his mid-40s, if not beyond. He told me last year, maybe beyond that. You can't then walk away. They just right. traded a franchise quarterback away, a guy who could be a franchise quarterback for 12 to 15 years. Yeah. You now have to play for at least two more years. So he was trapped. But he really had a hard time getting around to the notion of playing again for, for Belichick. He got there because he had really no choice. But frankly, the best case scenario for him would have been uh, Bill retiring and McDaniels taking over. He wanted to play for Robert Kraft. He wanted to play for the organization. He wanted to play for the fans. He wanted to play for Josh McDaniels. But playing for Belichick again was something that took a lot of time for him to get to that place. And, and obviously, he finally got there. There's probably not going to be a happy ending in New England. These things rarely end the way everybody imagines. Usually there's – and you've seen the, the build up to it. Like someone has to go before they want to go. Mm -hmm. And it seems like with the Patriots, whether it's, you know, there had not been a succession plan for Bill Belichick. Nobody really there seems to know how long he'll coach. Maybe he doesn't know. Josh McDaniels has been reported they're, they're paying him like a head coach now. His salary is elevated to keep him from leaving for Indianapolis. That maybe that's the succession plan. That's the closest thing they have to it there, but they haven't announced it. And I'm not sure they've told McDaniel that or not. But. By the way, how would you feel about that if you were Josh McDaniels? Would you want to replace Belichick? Now, it's almost, Adrian, like the same situation in a way that Belichick would have faced with the Jets. If Parcells goes up into the front office and Parcells hadn't accomplished anything with the Jets compared to what Belichick's accomplished with the Patriots, could you imagine being Josh McDaniels taking that job and Belichick becomes a president, overlord of that organization? Brady's at the tail end now and you have to start over. Would you want that? responsibility or would you rather like that's why i was surprised he didn't take the Colts job because you go to your own place you make your own way and you don't have the belichick thing hanging over you here's where i would make the case for that because i think and you've seen this with the patriots you see it in pro sports and i see it in the nba where, where i'm obviously more closely attuned ownership means so much and there are so many bad owners and there are places you can go i don't care how good you are you will not win you might have a good season but you can't sustain success with an owner who's either not committed or it's dysfunctional or doesn't know what he's doing and is trying to meddle or undo decisions you make. No matter how good you are, it's really hard to win in that situation. So, yes, replacing Bill Belichick or, let's say, replacing um, – you know, even with the Lakers, replacing a Pat Riley or, or, or one of the great coaches – there's something still to be said for, boy, I believe in this ownership. Mm -hmm. And while it creates other – the shadow and all those things, I'd still rather roll the dice at a place where they know me. They're invested in me. You know, If I go 6-10, and 10, they know I know what I'm doing. The players believe in me versus you, you know what uh, Matt Patricia goes through in his first week where now everyone's looking at him going <laughs> like, OK, like 
you know what you're doing? Like every young coach faces that. That would be the counter to that is, hey, I believe in this owner and I'd rather roll my dice here than some organization that I don't know very well. And you better believe Robert Kraft is going to be very committed to trying to win after Bill retires as a head coach, right? He's going to feel like I need to show something here too that <laughs> I can win without this guy as well. So I, I think that's a great point. And, and Kraft, I think, is the best owner in the NFL. Uh, I think – he should be in the Hall of Fame. I, I'm still not quite sure how Jerry Jones beat him to the punch on that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Kraft is, is really good. He'd be a guy I'd want to work for. And, uh, I, I guess that's what McDaniels saw. Now, do I know for sure that they told him you're going to be the successor? Uh, no, I, I don't have somebody directly in the book saying that, but I think it's pretty obvious that that's what's going to happen. The book is Belichick, the making of the greatest football coach of all time. The author is New York Times bestselling author Ian O'Connor. Ian, this is a tremendous book. This is one of the best sports biographies I've read, and I feel like I've read a lot of them. And this, you took a, a really complex, difficult subject, reported the heck out of it, wrote it great, and I'm happy for you. I think this is going to be, like, this is not going to be a book that just football fans or just Patriot fans, you know, this is a book about you know, one of the icons in all of sports, and you nailed it, man. Well, coming from an industry titan like yourself, <laughs> I very much appreciate Also a, a former a Belichick non-believer, uh, <laughs> I, I very much appreciate it, Adrian. It was great being here. Thank uh, you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, author Ian O'Connor of ESPN. Remember, you can subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes of this podcast wherever you get your shows. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, We'd also like to thank today's sponsors, Spotify, 23andMe, and RX Bar. Be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Woj Pod. We'll catch you next time. Guys, let's hear from our sponsor, Spotify, one more time. Some things were meant for each other. Fries and milkshakes, selfies and duck face, and now the Woj Pod and Spotify. Yes, the same app that has millions of songs now has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones, too. To subscribe to ours, search for The Woj Pod, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now, and now, and now.